Excited to be launching this morning into a new series. Uh, Those of you who are new to our church uh, or those of you who are joining us by our podcast or our app have joined us at a great time because we're starting a new series this morning. It's always a great surprise, isn't it, when you find something that you didn't know you lost. Like you put on a coat that you haven't worn since last year and you find 50 bucks in that coat pocket. That's great, isn't it, because it's like you won the lottery. It's like you're playing with house money. You can just do whatever you want with that. Or if you find your favorite pen in a junk drawer that you haven't been in in a long time. Or you go up and you find a a love letter from your spouse that's in a trunk that you've been rummaging through in the attic. And you haven't seen that in a long time. That's great, isn't it? Isn't that a lot of fun? That's great. But even though it's a great uh, surprise, it's not necessarily a great story. Because, well, those are places that you would expect to find some of those things. What makes a great story is when you find something in the last place that you would ever expect to find it, then, man, you've got a great story. Like if you find a, if if you go to Chicago and you see a palm tree in Chicago, that's like you would not ever expect to see that, right? Or if you're standing in line, if you're standing at Home Depot in the nuts and bolts section and you look over to your right and there is the Queen of England looking for a five-inch lag bolt, you're like, wow, that is something. That's a great story. Or like if you were to go to the University of Kentucky and find a basketball recruit that is not being paid to play there, that's something, right? I mean, it's like, what are you talking about? What, what? It's amazing because that's the last place that you would ever expect to find that, you know, whatever that is. That's what this series is about. It's about finding the gospel in the last place that you would ever expect to find it. There is a place in the Bible that I think even people who are familiar with the Bible would never expect to find the gospel. Let me give you a hint about where it is. It's in the Old Testament. Now, that's a surprise to some of you because I don't know if you realize this, but there are a lot of people who believe that the God of the Old Testament is very different than the God of the New Testament. You know what I say to that? I say, au contraire, Pierre, that is not the case. Very similar, and I'm going to show you that through this series. I mean, you can just get a little more specific, okay? A little more specific. Um, It's not just in the Old Testament. It's in the book of Exodus. Cue the gasp. Exodus? (gasps) Exodus? It can't possibly be in Exodus. That's where the law is. I mean, the gospel of grace can't possibly be found in the book of Exodus. Once again, you would be incorrect. It is. It's, it, it's there. And even more specifically than that, you're going to see in the next few weeks, you're going to see the gospel even at the mountain where God gives Moses the law. Believe it or not, it's there. And I want to show you this because until you see this, you will never understand the cohesiveness of the Bible. You will never understand the supremacy of Jesus Christ. And you will never see the beauty of the gospel over every other religious system and every other philosophy in the world. So if you have a Bible, I'd like for you to turn with me to the book of Exodus. We're going to start at chapter 1, Exodus chapter 1. And I'm going to meet you there in just a moment. I, I want you to understand, though, that this is not a series on the book of Exodus. We're, going to, we're not covering the whole book Uh, We're going to take some specific passages from the book of Exodus. Uh, The book of Exodus is an eyewitness historical account written by Moses of the salvation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. And it's an eyewitness account written by Moses of God's giving the law to Israel. The moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, all three of those portions of the law. It's an eyewitness account of God giving that to the nation of Israel. We just finished a series in which we saw the 
patriarchs of Israel having to move to Egypt to survive of a famine. Some of you guys have been following along, you know that, okay? Well, at the, book, at the opening of the book of Exodus, many years have passed. The nation has grown exponentially. Like, all their charts have been way up and to the right. There are millions of descendants now of those patriarchs who are living in Egypt. But the favorable treatment that the Jews have been receiving from the Egyptian kings of old has long been done away with. They are oppressed now. They are slaves to the king of Egypt. And the present king, in fact, in fear of the growth of this nation that it has its own culture, uh, he, in fear of them, he has put slave masters over the people of Israel to work them uh, and to oppress them and, and to turn them into slaves and to treat them ruthlessly. And I want you to look at Exodus chapter 1, verse 14. We're going to just look at that one uh, passage uh, or that one verse to start with this morning. Exodus chapter 1, look at verse uh, 14. The text says that they, the slave masters, made, the, made their lives, the Israelites' lives, bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. I want to stop there because there's something important that I want you to understand about this verse. The word that's translated labor, where it says harsh labor, that, that, that Hebrew word is a word that actually means to be enslaved to someone. It means to serve a master. And in fact, if you were to literally translate this verse, it, the word is used so frequently it would sound silly to read this verse as it's actually written. Let me just tell you what it would, how it would read if you just translated it literally. It would say, They made their lives bitter with harsh serving in bricks and mortar and with every kind of serving. With every kind of serving, they made them serve. Now that, I, I think you can see why the translators didn't uh, translate it that way into English because it sounds so nonsensically repetitive and yet in an effort to make it readable, they have obscured one of the major themes of the book of Exodus. And here it is. If you are serving anyone or anything but God, you are a slave. It's one of the major themes of the book of Exodus. If you are serving anyone or anything other than God, you are a slave. And being a slave is a very hard, very destructive, very bitter way to live your life. And we're going to come back to this later in the series, but I want to take you to something that you haven't read yet, or that we haven't read yet, but it's so famous that you probably know it. There is this moment in the book of Exodus where God tells the leader of Israel, Moses, to go to Pharaoh and to tell him something. You remember what he tells him? Let's all say it together. What does he say? What does he tell him? He says, let, let my people go. You are wrong. That is not what he says. He does not say, let my people go. That's what people think he says, because that's what Charlton Heston said. But that is not what, that's not what God told Moses to say. What he told Moses to say to Pharaoh was, let my people go so that they may worship me. Or sometimes he said, let my people go so that they may serve me. He never just says, let my people go. Now, that's an important distinction. I can imagine that some of you are thinking right now, well, wait, that doesn't make sense. God frees them from slavery in Egypt so that he can have them serve him? 
And they're serving masters in Egypt, and, and so he frees them to serve him. That's not really what freedom is, is it? Freedom means you don't have to serve anybody. They should be able to live any way they, that they like. But because God never says just, let my people go, or because he doesn't ever say, let my people go, so they can live however they want to live, because he doesn't say that, God is teaching that real freedom, the freedom to be everything that he designed a human being to be, real freedom finds its ultimate conclusion in the worship of God. In fact, what you're going to see in the book of Exodus is that once the people of Israel are, are saved from this horrible slavery, you're going to find that the rest of the book of Exodus is very tedious instruction about how Israel is to worship God. And it's very tedious. Like, like here's how the tabernacle is supposed to be built. And here's what goes on the doorposts. And here's the dimensions of the Ark of the Covenant. And here's the fabric that the curtains of the tabernacle are made of. In fact, if, if any of you, some of you guys have tried to, have you ever tried to read through the Bible? You know, like you try to read through the Bible and like Genesis goes real fast because it's stories and there's intrigue and mystery and all sorts of cool stuff. And then you get through the first half of the book of Exodus, and that's cool. You're just flying along getting through that because there's, there's stories there. And then it's like you just hit this, you just slam into this wall of this tedious stuff that goes on for like two different, for two additional books, this tedious stuff about how Israel is to worship God. And look, let's just be honest. It is a snorer to read that stuff. I mean, it, it is. I, I'm not trying to, I'm not saying there's not any great, there's, there's not great value in this stuff, I'm just saying that if you just if you just go in there and just read it, it's like a, it's like if you can't sleep at night, pull that stuff out, and it's the best sedative that you've ever taken, because um, it is a real snore. But if you step back, like, and take a thirty thousand foot perspective on the Book of Exodus, here's what you get: the book starts with slavery, and it ends in worship. That's what you get. Starts with slavery and it ends in worship. And that's very important because there's a profound theological point in that that teaches us something about the gospel that, from the point of view of the book of Exodus, is still in the future. But it teaches us something about the gospel that is to come. And I want you to write this down. I want you to get this, put it down someplace. If you have a Bible, write it in the margin. If you if you got, you know, some sort of you know phone or something like that, you know, take it down on the phone. Here's the theological point that he's trying to teach us, and it's very important. That God's salvation will be about liberating you from the slavery of worshiping anything else but God. That's the point. This gospel that is going to come in the future, this salvation that's going to come to you in the future, that salvation will be about liberating you from the slavery of worshiping anything else but God. Now, I tell you, right off the bat, as soon as I say that, some of you who have believed in Christ already are thinking to yourselves, wait a minute, salvation? Salvation's about getting me to heaven when I die. Well, certainly that's a part of salvation, but if it only has to do with eternity, if salvation only is about eternity, it leaves your life here on earth untouched. It leaves you in slavery. Salvation is about liberating you from the slavery of worshiping anything else but God. Now, there are others of you that are thinking at this moment, wait a minute, that doesn't apply to me because I'm an atheist. I'm an agnostic. I don't worship anything. But that's not true. Everyone 
Everyone worships something. Every person on the planet worships something. In fact, it's not whether you worship, it's what you worship. Everyone lives for something. Everyone. Everyone has something that they would say, if I have that, I have significance. I have security. If I have that thing, I have it. And for some of you, you might say, well, that's my reputation. I want to be known as a very good person. Uh, I want to be known as a religious person. That's what that would be for you. Some of you would say, well, for me, it's, it's my level of financial attainment. I want to be known as a person that's got uh, great wealth, and that means something to you. If you have that, you have significance and security. Some of you would say, career achievement. I want to be known as a person that just keeps advancing in my career. And if I have that, then, then man, then I'm really significant. I'm really secure. Some of you would say it's, it's having a perfect family. If I have a perfect family, if I'm known in the community as having a perfect family, then I'm significant. Then I'm secure. But think about it. Anything that you have to have to feel secure and to feel significant is something that you worship. It's, it's, it's an idol. You become a slave to it. You, you aren't free. You're only happy as long as everything is going well with that thing. If any circumstance threatens that thing, whatever that thing is, you're in despair. You get angry. You begin to feel anxious. You kind of fall apart in worry and fear. By the way, do you know what a personal crisis is? You know, you know what the essence of a personal crisis is? Something that you would say, well, that's a crisis in my life. You know what it is? It's when something that made you feel safe in the universe, something that you were building your life on, something that you thought was a rock on which you could build your life, turns out to be sand. That's what a personal crisis is. That's what we call, that's the essence of a personal crisis. That's what we call a personal crisis. And the reason is that everyone's heart, everyone, mine, Yours, everyone's heart is chained to something. And what God is teaching us here is that if it's not God, if it's something else, it means that you're a slave. Until you are ravished by, until you are bowed down before, until you are astounded by the beauty and the glory and the presence of God, you cannot be free. And so the first principle of the book of Exodus, the first principle that God teaches us about the gospel is that your journey, your personal journey of liberation, your personal exodus out of slavery to those things that you are enslaved to and you might not ever think of yourself right now as being enslaved to them, but you are. Your personal exodus out of slavery isn't done until it finds its destination in absolute and utter worship and service to God and to God alone. You're only free if God is your master. That's what God is teaching us. And this gospel that's going to come in the future is about liberating you from slavery to those things so that you're only worshiping God and nothing else and no one else. That's the first thing. Now, there's something else that I want to show you that is very powerful. Um, and this will, what I want to do after I show you this is I want to tie everything together that we've talked about this morning. I'll, I'll tie it all together. But I want you to just look ahead, if you would. Uh, go on to chapter 1, verse 15, the next verse. Chapter 1, verse 15. 
And this is going to be a little lengthy, what we're going to read here, but it's worth it. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shiprach and Puach, said, when you are helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill it. But if it's a girl, let her live. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and he asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They're vigorous and they give birth before the midwives arrive. So God was kind to the midwives. And the people increased and they became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. And then Pharaoh gave this order to all his people. Every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile. In other words, and let him drown. But let every girl live. Now a man of the tribe of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tire and pitch. And then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds along the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to see what would happen to him. Then Pharaoh's daughter went down to the Nile to bathe, and her attendants were walking along the riverbank. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her female slave to get it. She opened it, saw the baby. He was crying. And she felt sorry for him. This is one of the Hebrew babies, she said. And then his sister asked Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and get one of the Hebrew women to nurse the baby for you? Yes, go, she answered. So the girl went and got the baby's mother. Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this baby and nurse him for me and I will pay you. So the woman took the baby and nursed him. And when the child grew older, she took him to Pharaoh's daughter and and he became her son. She named him Moses, saying, I drew him out of the water. Infanticide uh, is what Pharaoh had commanded his people. Now, here's what I want you to see, because this is very important. I want you to see that the heroes in chapter 1 and in that part of chapter 2, well, actually, in chapter 1, the Hebrews are, are the two midwives. Now, it might have been that they were like the head midwives with a lot of assistant midwives underneath them because I doubt two people could have handled all of the births of a nation that large. But I want you to notice that we are given the names, I don't know if you saw this, but we are given the names of the two midwives in verse 15, Shiprach and Puach. But did you notice that we don't have any idea what the name of the most powerful man in Egypt was? The text doesn't tell us. But it honors these two midwives. Pharaoh told them, kill all the boys, and they didn't do it. And God wanted them honored. Here's what we know about midwives. Midwives usually had no children of their own. And the significance in, uh, that was very significant in a culture in which women with no children were considered useless and they were considered cursed by the gods. Guess who God uses to save all the baby boys in Israel, and specifically the one who will become the leader of Israel? Guess who he uses? A couple of midwives. He uses the women. Women by themselves were always lower status than men. And midwives 
were lower status than most women. Midwives were the lowest of the low. They were social outsiders. They were gender outsiders. They were economic outsiders. But those people were to be the saviors of God's people in chapter 1. In chapter 2, we see Moses' mother in this brilliant and creative act of civil disobedience. She kind of does what Pharaoh said. She puts the baby in the river, but she doesn't drown him. She puts, she puts Moses uh, in the river. But instead of drowning him, she puts him in a basket and floats him to where the Egyptian women would bathe. And guess what? Pharaoh's own daughter finds Moses. She's a Gentile, an outsider. She's a religious outsider. She's a racial outsider. But in this incredible act of mercy and compassion, she saves Moses. So God uses poor midwives in chapter 1. He uses a group of women in chapter 2, some of whom were racial outsiders, some of whom were social outsiders, all of whom were gender outsiders, to save his people. And what does that mean? Well, here's here's the second big point that this is supposed to teach us about the gospel that is to come. That God's salvation will be socially subversive in that it happens through the weak and the powerless, not through the strong and powerful. Let me say that again, that God's salvation, this gospel that will come in the future, will be socially subversive in that it will happen through the weak and the powerless, not the strong and not the powerful. Now, this is a recurring theme, by the way, throughout the Bible. If you read through the book of Genesis, if you were to just read through it, you would notice something throughout the book. You know, ancient culture honored the, the tradition. They were very strict about honoring the, the tradition of primogeniture, which means that all of the possessions and all of the wealth and honor of the family name all went to the oldest son, right? It all went to the oldest son. But you see this thing happening through the book of Genesis, that God is always working through the book of Genesis, not through the older son. He's working through the second son in the book of Genesis. Socially subversive. He works through Abel, not Cain. Isaac, not Ishmael. Jacob, not Esau. Socially subversive. And then in addition... In the book of Genesis, you would see that God was always working in Genesis through, again, doing this in a socially subversive way. He was working through barren women in the book of Genesis, not fruitful women. And he always worked through the older woman, not the younger woman. And he always worked through the unlovely woman, not the beautiful woman. And he always worked through the unloved not the loved woman. So it was Sarah, not Hagar. Leah, not Rachel. And he does this over and over and over throughout the book of Genesis. Now, if you look at what's going on in Exodus chapter 1 and 2, how does God save his people? All of the heroes in Genesis 1 and 2 are female. Not male. In other words, God was always working through the socially wrong people. In the book of Genesis, the book of Exodus, socially subversive, working through the wrong people, people who the rest of society says are the unimportant, the despised, uh, the neglected, the nobodies. 
Now, what's the significance of that? Well, think about the culture in which we live today, folks. Think about our culture. What is it that we exalt? What is it that we honor the most? What is it that we strive for the most? Beauty, wealth, success, power. Those are the things that we strive for. And perhaps what God is teaching us here is that this is something that we need to, well, our word for that is the word unlearn, that we need to unlearn. God seems to be saying that the things that we strive for and that we long for and that we idolize mean absolutely nothing to him. And if your heart is patterned after his heart, you will care for people, you will care for the people who are without privileges and who are without power. And you will work for them and you will care for them and you will seek ways to help them. You will care about social justice. You will care about the abuse of power that takes advantage of the weak in any society. A person whose heart is patterned after God's will care about those things. And it also means that if you're a nobody, if you've been told all of your life that you don't matter, that you're a nobody, and some of you have been told those things, if you've been told that, or if you've, if you've thought throughout your life that you're a nobody, I want to tell you it doesn't matter. God likes to work with and through people who've been told all their lives that they're nobodies. There is this, there is this saying about Moses that Moses spent the first part of his life, we'll see this in the weeks to come, that Moses spent the per- first part of his life thinking he was a somebody. And then God sent him out through the desert and Moses spent the next 40 years of his life learning that he was a nobody. And then he spent the last 40 years of his life seeing what God can do through somebody who's a nobody. God loves to work through nobodies. If you're here today and you've been told that you're a nobody or thought that you were a nobody, know this, that God loves to work with and through people just like you and me. The social outsiders. See, God's salvation his, the gospel that is to come uh, from the point of view of the book of Exodus is going to be socially subversive in that it is going to work in and through the weak and the powerless, not the strong, not the powerful. Now, here's what I want to do now. I want to bring all of this together. And in fact, I really have to bring all of this together because I, I have to be honest with you, that a moment like this, this is the most dangerous point of any sermon uh, for anyone who's listening to it. And so I have to bring this together because here's what's so dangerous about it. Here's what some of you are going to do. Some of you are going to say, some of you like type A driven people, you're going to say to yourself, okay, I am not going to be a slave to anything. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to be really good. And you know what will happen if, if that's the perspective that you take? You know what will happen? Uh, you will become a slave. You will not be free. And you're like, what? How how could that possibly be? Well, here's, here's why. What will happen if you take that attitude, the quality of your service to God and the quality of your worship will become your sense of security and significance. You'll start saying to yourself, 
when everything's going good in that area, when you feel like you're serving God well, and when you feel like you're worshiping God well, and your devotional life is whatever you think it should be, you will go, man, I feel really good. But when all of those things are not so good, and you're not as consistent as you want to be, and you're not serving in all the ways that you think you should be, and you know your spiritual life isn't what you thought it should be, and all of that, you're going to feel horrible. You're going to feel awful. And that's what it feels like to be a slave. It's like, you know, I feel good when when I'm doing well, and I feel bad when I'm doing poorly. That's what it feels to be a slave. And I know this because that has been, uh, that's been the largest part, that's been the basis of the largest part of my own Christian experience. Somebody would preach a sermon, and I'd be like, I'm going to do that, and I'm going to do it better than anybody else, and I'm going to go for it. And I felt like a slave. I mean, it was miserable. Some of you here, some of you listening are going to say, well, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to go work for the weak and the powerless. I'm going I'm to serve the weak and the powerless, the, the outsiders. I'm going to go for them, and I'm going to care about social justice, and I'm going to get involved in that. But I have to tell you that that too will become your slave master. And eventually what will happen is it will wear you out or it will burn you out. Or sometimes what will happen is that you will become proud. You'll become proud of your work with those people. And you will look down your nose at other people who don't work with those people. All of these principles from a passage like the one that we just looked at, uh, they they will strangle you if you try to obey them. What you need to understand, what you have to understand, is that the story of the Exodus and what we will see weeks ahead in Moses' leadership of the nation of Israel, all of that, it's not given to us to say to us, you go then, do likewise. It's not given for that purpose. Not. It's given to point us to a greater Exodus led by a greater Moses. Another baby boy who the king of the land at the time would want to kill. Another family who escaped to Egypt just to survive. A baby boy who would be a nobody growing up in a nobody town, an outsider to the religious establishment. This baby boy would grow up and lead an exodus, but it would be a greater exodus. It would be an exodus that would bring salvation from sin and death for all of eternity. The difference between this baby boy and Moses was that Moses is going to lead an exodus at the risk of his life, but this baby boy will lead an exodus that will cost him his life. And that baby boy's name is Jesus. He was poor, He was unlovely. He was despised by his own people. He was of a despised race of people. He was rejected by the religious establishment. And in an ultimate act of sacrifice, he was crucified on a Gentile cross outside the walls of Jerusalem. And his death made possible the salvation not only of his own people, but also of all people. The Gentiles were even included if they believed on him. And here's what you need to understand. The only way to believe in Jesus, the only way to take him into your life is by becoming weak. It's by saying, you see, you don't do it. You don't do it by saying, I'm strong 
take me. No. When you come to the cross of Jesus Christ, you say, you, you take it into your life by saying, I, I am weak. Um, I'm a sinner and I am not worthy of your grace. Then and only then can you worship God without it strangling you. You see? See, if you just try to take the story from the book of Exodus and you just apply it directly and you say, I'm gonna go worship God. No, it'll strangle you. You will never do it well. You will never do it consistently enough. You will never do it perfectly. And so your whole life will be an up and down. It will be hard. It will be bitter. You'll be a slave. It'll be a horrible way to live. But it's only when you come to Jesus Christ in weakness and you say, Lord, I'm basing every day of my life and my relationship with you, I base every day of my life not on the quality of my service, not on the quality of my worship, not on the quality of my prayer life, not on the quality of my Bible study, not on the quality of my evangelism, not of, uh, on the quality of my service to the poor. I'm basing it on the quality of Jesus' commitment and sacrifice. Look, I know I'm a mess. I know I'm a failure. God, accept me not because of me, but because of what Jesus did on the cross. Then and only then, when you come to God that way, then and only then, the principles from a passage like the book of Exodus will not strangle you. And only then can you serve the poor and the outsider because you recognized that Jesus provided salvation by himself becoming weak, by himself giving up power, by himself dying on a cross. And you recognize that were it not for this incredible act of mercy and compassion by Jesus Christ, that you were an outsider and you would never be able to have a relationship with God. And then and only then can you serve the poor without looking down your nose at them or anybody else because you recognize that you are one of them. You too were an outsider to God's grace. And all of this because of Jesus, the greater Moses, who led a greater exodus. And there you see the cohesiveness of the Bible, the supremacy of Jesus Christ, and the beauty of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's all there in the cross of Jesus Christ. And you see it in the last place you would expect to find it, in the book of Exodus. Would you bow your heads with me? Lord Jesus Christ, um, the Bible is all about you. Forgive us for the fact that often when we come to a passage like this one that we walk away and think, I'm going to go do that. And we do not recognize that the purpose of a passage like this is to point us to you. We thank you so much for the profound beauty of the gospel. Thank you so much that you would care.
care for us so much, that you would love us so much, that you would care to liberate us from the slavery of serving anything else but you. And we thank you so much for the fact that the gospel is socially subversive and that you work through the weak and the powerless and that the things that we honor, you don't honor. And that's how a relationship with you just turns everything that we think we know about how life ought to be lived, it just turns it on its head. Lord, for those that are here this morning that may not have come to a place in their life where they have believed in you, would you today work on their hearts and bring them to that place where they would believe on you? And Lord, I pray for all of us here this morning that as we walk out of here today that we would do so recognizing that it is your work on the cross, your life, your death that is the basis for a relationship with you not mine not my work not the quality of my life but the quality of yours but we ask that you would be exalted through city church through every church that's meeting in the city this morning we pray that through your cross that you would change this city and that we would be instruments of change in this city of our belief in you and what you did on the cross for us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.